This morning we are going to uh, complete our short look at uh, Jesus' interactions with uh, the religious of his culture and the, the rejected of his culture. And if you've been with us uh, for the past couple weeks, what we've discovered is uh, that Jesus, when he was here on earth, often had uh, very harsh words of judgment uh, for the religious of his culture. And at the time of Jesus' day, the religious were the, the top rung of their culture. And if you were with us last week, you saw probably what was the most intense of Jesus' words uh, for the religious of his day. Uh, but one of the things that we've also discovered is that Jesus was uniquely uh, compassionate and gracious to those whom society had disregarded, those whom society really found no value in. And I think what we found all throughout is that if what is true of Jesus and the way he spent his time should also be true of us, his followers, we are called to a similar path. And so this morning's passage uh, is John chapter 7, verses 53 through John chapter 8, uh, verse 11. And what we'll see is it's a, a controversial passage uh, for a lot of different reasons, but perhaps the most controversial thing about this passage is the strong contrast that we see here between the judgment of the religious and a sinner who is in deep need of the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, Martin Luther said that the Holy Scripture is the garment which our Lord Jesus Christ has put on and in which he lets himself be seen and found. So my prayer, is, my prayer is that as we approach the Scripture this morning, we would see the beauty of Jesus clearly. So John chapter 7, 53 to 8 verse 11. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word. Father, speak to us in your word now. Help us to see the true character of you, the true nature of your work of redemption in history. May you refresh our hearts on the things that are most important and the most valuable. May we hear your voice clear through all the noise that tends to, to crowd, out, uh, crowd into our minds and crowd out your voice so that we can see and hear you clearly this morning. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
As we come to uh, really our text this morning, I think first it's important to, to probably address something that you might see in your text or the notes related to your text if you have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. And one of the things that you discover about this passage is that, uh, and one of the things that the notes tell you, is that this passage was not actually in the earliest manuscripts of the scriptures. In fact, if you look at the original Greek, it really doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the Gospel of John, uh, and it certainly doesn't seem to fit chronologically with what John is doing here in his Gospel. And so because of that, some will reject it and say that this really shouldn't be in the Bibles and we shouldn't really preach about it and really reflect on it. It's an interesting story, but, but not necessarily accurate. So some will say that. However, I would say that the, the overwhelming majority of biblical scholarship actually believes that this should be included in the Bible, and that's probably why it is still in most of the copies of the Bible uh, that you have uh, in front of you. And so why is there so much historic controversy related to this passage? Um, of course, there are some internal things, but, but why has it been so controversial? Well, there's a couple of theories on why some people want to reject it. Some people really don't like this passage because it leaves open a lot of questions about uh, the place of God's law and the role of judgment. And so some have looked at this passage and said, well, should this be normative? Should crimes, uh, should sins be left unpunished? Is, is, and is Jesus somehow kind of making light of this woman's sin? And so a lot of people have asked questions related to that. Some have not liked it and have rejected it for fear that it might somehow endorse uh, some sort of sexual pro promiscuity, which I don't think it really does at all. Uh, others don't like it because there is uh, an inequity of punishment here that uh, in some ways it is only the woman that appears to be punished in this story and, and not the man. And, and why is there this inequity? We'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. Uh, but Augustine uh, believed that anxious husbands must have removed or rejected this story from the Bible so that it could not be abused by their wives which is a pretty interesting theory uh, when you think about it as well. So all that to say is there's a lot of controversy with this passage from the outside, uh, from the history of scholarship. And, and really, you can sort of make what you want of that. Um, but at the end of the day, I still believe it's worthy to preach on uh, despite all of the controversies that surround it. And so what I wanna do this morning is, is not so much focus on the outside controversies, but really the controversy that is within the story that is within the passage because you see here a woman who is caught in adultery. You see the religious who are quick in their rush to judgment. And finally, you see Jesus who is quick to run towards compassion. And so our story sets the stage for us. It tells us that Jesus is sitting in the temple when a great uproar enters into the temple. And you can just imagine what the crowd was like and how loud it was and how disruptive it was as they entered into a temple because a woman was caught in the act of adultery. And so you ask, what is the crowd? How is the mob? How is everybody gonna respond to this woman? But the bigger question is, how will Jesus 
respond to this woman and this situation. Of course, what we see first is that the religious of Jesus' day, they were quick in their rush to judgment. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? If you've been with us, you'll know we've talked a lot about scribes and Pharisees in this series, and they were really the experts in religious law in Jesus' day. Uh, When you think about Jesus' day, at that point, a lot of people were illiterate, uh, and even if they were literate, they didn't have a whole lot of access to the sacred scriptures. They didn't have all the Bible copies that you and I have, and so they just didn't have access, and even if they did have access, they might not be able to read it. And so they would have to rely on these scribes and these Pharisees to become experts in the law and then communicate their expertise to the rest of God's people. And so they were responsible for explaining the law of God to the people, and they were very passionate as a result of that. And then when it comes to this law in particular, this wasn't just a a, a judicial law of Jesus' day, but it was a judicial law that was rooted in the laws that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so these religious folks were very much uh, feeling righteous. They were feeling right in upholding the law and they were following the passion of the scriptures in their own minds. And what this law taught was this, that those who were caught in adultery were to be stoned to death. In fact, in certain parts of the scriptures, it even says that, that uh, those that were caught in adultery, particularly women who were caught in adultery, could be strangled publicly in front of everyone else to be seen. And so that was part of the law of this day. And, and, and when it comes to this story, there was really never any doubt or question as to whether this woman was guilty of her adultery. And so it feels as if this is an open and shut case. It feels that way. But there's actually more that is going on to this story than really meets the eye. And I think there's a couple of clues in the passage that hint that something is deeper going on here than just a simple open and shut case of judicial law. And one of those hints is really the inequity of it all. What we talked about just a moment before, there really is an inequity to this story because after all, I think we all know, after all, it takes two people to be involved in the act of adultery. And actually, this ancient law said that both both parties would need to be stoned to death if they were caught in the act of adultery. And so you start to ask the question, where is the man in this story? Because he seems to be nowhere to be found. So isn't this some sort of gross double standard that we are reading about here? But I think there is certainly something bigger happening here that shows us that at the end of the day, this really isn't about the woman at all. Instead, this is all about trapping Jesus Christ. Look at verse six, it says this, This they said to test him, 
that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so what it seems is this. It seems as if all of this is a bigger plan against Jesus. In fact, it seems that these religious professionals knew that this woman was adulterous. And so if that's the case, this wasn't the first time. This was common knowledge that this woman was adulterous. And so what these law professionals did is they waited for the act to happen. They interrupted that act and then they brought this woman straight to Jesus in the midst of the temple, leaving the man behind. And so what you sort of realize here is that this woman at the end of the day is really being used. She is simply their pawn in order to trap Jesus, to to somehow trap Jesus as a violator of the law of God. And if they could trap Jesus in that, then they could bring about his demise. So really, they're not passionate about the justice of the law at all. This isn't an issue of purity. It isn't an issue of righteousness. This woman is simply a tool that is being used in their hands to get at Jesus. They don't really care about justice. They care only about bringing Jesus down. And so this woman, her story, her personal life are just incidental to this great plan to bring Jesus down. Because all of this could have been done privately, but instead, her shame really is on display for everyone to see. And I think at the end of the day, this passage has a lot to do with this thing that we call shame. And this thing that we know all about, Carl Jung, who was a a Swiss uh, psychiatrist, said that shame is a soul-eating emotion. It is a soul-eating emotion. And I think all of us, if we've lived any sort of life, know a little bit about what that means. We've all felt that at some point in our lives. We've known those feelings of regret when we look back on something that we've done that we wish that we hadn't done. We all know what it's like at times in our life to to be exposed for who we truly are and there's really sort of nothing that we can do about it. We've all known what it's like to to sort of lay at wake at night, uh, unable to sleep, wishing that we could have changed something that we did that day or something that we've done in our past that might plague us and and we wonder whether we're ever gonna get past it. And in those moments, we we can actually feel a tangible dirtiness to us. We, We feel polluted, we feel as if our mistakes and our missteps, the things that we've done, our sins, are apparent for everyone and all to see. That, that everyone is, has come to terms with the fact that we're not perfect and that's been uh, on display for everyone. And in those moments, we often feel stripped naked for all to see us, that there's nothing to really cover over our shame. And if it isn't taken care of, we all know that it will eventually eat away at our soul. You see, this woman, she was exposed. Her sin was now on display for everyone to see. There was no hiding. There was no way to cover it up. There was no way out of it. And so the question becomes, what is Jesus going to do with this woman's shame? 
Well, at first, Jesus doesn't respond. It tells us he simply writes in the dirt with his finger. Now, what was Jesus writing? Nobody really knows. Now, people have asked, people have made a lot of, uh, uh, of guesses as to what uh, Jesus was writing in the dirt. Some people think he was writing the names of his accusers or the accusers of this woman. Uh, some people think he was writing out their sins. Uh, some people think Jesus was just buying time uh, by doing this. Maybe Jesus was just doodling because he liked to doodle in his spare time. At the end of the day, we don't know what Jesus was writing in the sand that day. But finally, after they press him, the passage tells us this. He stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. At once, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. See, what Jesus does here is this. Jesus cuts through their self-righteousness and he actually brings them to the place of feeling exposed and shameful. The older ones, the passage tells us, who had lived longer begin their own walk of shame. That's really what this is. This is the original walk of shame that we read here in the Gospels. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus breaks through the trap he doesn't deny the, the heinousness of this woman's sin, nor does he deny the integrity of God's law. What he does is he simply opens the eyes of her accusers to the shame that exists in each one of their own lives. Friends, I think this tells us a lot about the gospel. And I think it tells us that a part of the gospel path is just this very thing. A part of coming to terms with the gospel is our eyes being open to the reality of our own personal sin and shame. It's God stepping in and breaking through the self-righteousness and the deception that all of us have. And when he does it, it is disruptive. When he does it, it is hard, but what the gospel tells us is that it is the necessary path towards forgiveness. Unfortunately, in our story, the religious who have now come to terms with their shame, they don't stick around. As soon as their, their shame is exposed, they run away. They wanna hide, they wanna cover it up. And in the end, what they do is they walk away with their shame. One commentator said this, he said that those who had come to shame Jesus and this woman in the process, now they are the ones who are leaving in shame. And so what we see is that the religious are quick to judgment, but what we see in Jesus is that he is quick to grace. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now and sin no more. See, what's beautiful about Jesus' interaction with the woman is this. He doesn't gloss over her sin as if she wasn't guilty for doing something. 
He addresses it. He addresses it directly. He addresses it head on. But what he also does is he introduces her to something that was bigger than her sin and bigger than her shame. He introduces her to forgiveness. When you think about it, she was on the brink of death and now she is given new life in Jesus. Not because she deserved it. That is crystal clear in this story. But she gets it because of the unrelenting mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, none of us would ever want to be in this woman's position. None of us would ever want to be publicly exposed like this woman was. No one would ever want to have their sins plastered over uh, some big screen or on YouTube for the whole world to watch. But friends, make no mistake, God sees all of it, doesn't he? God sees all of it. The hidden things, the things that we think are hidden are not hidden to him. He fully knows who we are. He fully knows everything that we've done. Every thought, every word, every deed are taken into account in the mind and character of God. And because of that, each and every one of us stand exposed and we stand condemned before God. We have much to be ashamed of. But here is the beauty of this story, the beauty of the gospel. We don't need to stay in the shame. We don't need to to be burdened by it. The sentence of condemnation that we deserve, it can be lifted because in the end of this story, this woman walks away forgiven. And what the gospel tells us is this, that you and I can be just as forgiven when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the only way that's possible is because of what Jesus has done for us. Because what you see later on in his life is that Jesus himself would be stripped. Jesus himself would be brought to a mock trial and spit upon and spoken harshly to. These same religious experts would shout for his execution. They would shout for his crucifixion because he didn't fit with their picture of the law. Jesus Christ himself would bear public shame as a common criminal brought out of the city to be crucified for all to see. He bore the weight of our sin in that moment. He bore the weight of our shame in that moment. And in that moment, no one was there to come to his rescue. But he endured it all so that you and I could have something to do with our shame. He did it so that we can take it all to him and have it washed in the cleansing flood of forgiveness. Martin Luther said this, if you have tasted the law and sin, and if you know the ache of sin, then look here and see how sweet in comparison the grace of God is, the grace which is offered to you and I in the gospel. Let's pray.